Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, missed you all last Lord's Day. I was uh, grateful for the ministry of Big Red, Kevin, as he opened up the Word of God. We were visiting um, our newest granddaughter, uh, Cleo Faith, uh, Cleo Joy Whitcomb, excuse me. And oh yeah, we also visited our son and his wife. <laughs> and we uh, attended their church there and. Tulsa, and uh, so that was a really blessed time, but just like as in the Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home, so it's good to be back. There, there is one other announcement, and that is to let, let you all know that we really do need some children's Sunday school teachers, so if you are available to help in that area, you can contact um, in, any of the church officers, contact Lisa Carraway our volunteer coordinator. Uh, also in the back of your bulletin, there's contact information for the church. Uh, but uh, please think about that, pray about that. We need more Sunday school teachers. All right, well, we are back here in Matthew chapter five, um, the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus kicks off his uh, public ministry and uh, he, he shows himself here to be Yahweh in the flesh. He shows himself to be the God of the Old Testament, the God, the God who gave the Ten Commandments through Moses from Mount Sinai in human form. And because that's who Jesus is, he's able to explain the true meaning of the law. And that's what he's doing here. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's not contradicting Moses. But he is contradicting the various perversions and twistings and mistaken understandings of the Jewish people at his time as they were led astray in many cases from their spiritual leaders, namely the Pharisees and the scribes. And in doing this, Jesus is fulfilling what we saw in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Part of that, part of that involves setting the record straight about what the true meaning of the law is. So last time we were here in Matthew 5, we, we looked at the sixth commandment, the true meaning of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder verses 21 through 26, and now in verses 27 through 32, which is our subject for today, uh, we're looking at the true meaning of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So let's look at that together. <clears throat> First of all, in verse 27, we're calling this the, the letter of the law. The letter of the law. So Jesus says, you have heard, and just like before in verse 21, um, when he says, you have heard that it was said, this is what the Jewish people were used to hearing from the scribes and Pharisees. This is not what they heard from God through his word. You, 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 everything that's going to follow. You, you shall not commit adultery. 
That is the seventh commandment. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 in the Decalogue. It's also repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in order to do justice to the text, we have to talk about the meaning of the word. And so I'm trying to keep it limited to PG-12 or something. And, and you know, don't you, there's always a tension when it comes to subjects like this because you know as well as I do that the world just pounds into us sexual filth constantly as soon as we step foot out of this building. And so um, sometimes we need to be real and we need to talk about the truth uh, and we, we sure don't want to offend unnecessarily or be crude or profane but uh, the Bible does talk about sex, and it does talk about sexual immorality, and we're, we're going to do that in a rated PG-12 sense, I trust. So, what is adultery? Well, technically, the letter of the law, adultery is a married person having sexual intercourse with someone other than their husband or wife. Technically, that's what adultery is is. And uh, that sense of adultery is brought out in Leviticus 18 and verse 20, where the law said, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. And uh, why is adultery wrong? Why did God forbid it? Well, if you would look with me in the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Moses, speaking as the Holy Spirit moved him, wrote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so um, everything that we're going to be talking about today is not just based on the law, but really it goes back further than the law. It goes back to creation itself. God created Adam and Eve and everything about them prior to the fall, and that include their, included their sexuality. And their sexuality was in the context of Adam and Eve being husband and wife, the first husband and wife. And it's part of their one flesh, flesh relationship. Their one flesh relationship is more than sex, but it includes their sexual relationship as well. And we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about God's design in this way, Note verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, and neither should we be talking about God's truth, even though it's a sensitive subject. So why is adultery wrong? Why is it included in the Ten Commandments? Because it breaks apart what God has joined together. Adultery is a violation of, of the one flesh relationship of a husband who's a man and a wife, his wife, 
who is a woman. That's why it's wrong. That's why it's forbidden. Well, back to the Sermon on the Mount, because of the emphasis of the Pharisees and the scribes and those rabbis who went before them, many of Jesus' hearers would have understood that as long as they didn't actually have sexual intercourse outside of marriage, then they were good as far as the seventh commandment was concerned. The seventh commandment specifically forbids adultery, having sexual intercourse with someone other than uh, someone's husband or wife. And someone could think, well, I've never done that, or I'm not doing that, therefore I'm good, as far as the seventh commandment is concerned. Well, not so fast, says Jesus. So that is the letter of the law, verse 27. And now in verse 28, the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. So Jesus continues, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that but, but I say to you, again, this is not Jesus contradicting the Old Testament or even adding to the Old Testament. He's contradicting what they had heard from their rabbis and from their culture. In fact, the, the Old Testament law teaches the same thing, that lusting in the heart is wrong. It's also sinful. It's also a violation of the marriage covenant. That word lust means to strongly desire something. And it's not always used in a negative or sinful sense. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17, for example, it's uh, used in relation to the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 17, if I can get there. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. That's the same word that's translated lust in, math, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Holy Spirit has this strong desire for our holiness, which is why he's called the Holy Spirit. But lust here on the Sermon on the Mount is not the kind of strong desire that the Holy Spirit um, experiences, but it's wrong, it's illicit, it, it's forbidden, it's a strong desire to have what be belongs to someone else and to engage in an activity which is morally wrong. That's straight out of the Lunida Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. So it's a strong desire for something that's sinful, something that's forbidden. And Jesus explains here that physical adultery starts with adultery in the heart. 
physical adultery is a matter of the heart. And this is indeed consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament. This is not brand new. Job chapter 31 and verse 1, where Job's defending himself against his accusers, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job knew the truth of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5 and verse 28. Or Proverbs 6 and verse 27, talking about the the immoral, adulterous, seductress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Again, it's the same idea that Jesus teaches here in Matthew 5 and verse 28. However, however, even though it's true that physical adultery starts in the heart, it starts with heart adultery, and clearly that's what Jesus is saying, that doesn't mean that adultery in the heart is the moral equivalent. It's exactly the same. It's just as evil as physical adultery. That's not what Jesus is saying. Some people have that mistaken assumption. Well, I've already been looking with lust. I might as well go ahead and do it. And that's, that's a mistaken understanding of the word of God. Both Adultery in the heart and physical adultery are sinful, but committing physical adultery, actually carrying the lust out into action, is an obvious escalation of evil. I mean, common sense should tell us that. But think about the example of David and Bathsheba as as an illustration of this point. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the story of David and Bathsheba. Starting in verse 2. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It happened late one afternoon... When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And this is between the lines, but I believe we're supposed to get the point that uh, David was very attracted to her. And David didn't just notice her in passing and quickly turned away, but he noticed her and he stood there and he took the sight in. He was lusting in his heart. Verse three, and David sent and inquired about the woman. So here's the thing. There's this escalation. It wasn't just that David happened to see Bathsheba and that was it. And it wasn't even that David recognized the beauty of Bathsheba and then stood there and looked with lust, but he acted on it. 
He inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David acted even more on his lust. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And then you know the rest of the story. Now David thinks he's really in trouble, and so he conspires to first have the pregnancy pinned on Uriah, and when Uriah proves that he's not going to fall for that because of his faithfulness, it turns out, to David, then David actually conspires to have Uriah murdered. And so this is often the case that one sin leads to another, and especially sexual sin, oftentimes leads to another. Lying, and in this case, murder. But notice the pathology of David's adultery. It started in his heart, but then it progressed. He acted on it. And it's interesting that in chapter 12, when God, through the prophet Nathan, rebuked David, notice what it says in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? God, through Nathan, focuses on the evil deed, the actual adultery, and the murder. But we know, because the Bible teaches us this, and Matthew is teach, uh, Jesus is teaching us this now, we know that actually it started in David's heart. But there's an escalation. And so what David ended up doing with Bathsheba and then against Uriah was obviously a greater sin, a worse evil than... You don't have to understand right now, Siri. Um, than adultery in the heart. So that's the point that I want to get across there. Um, and Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28 is that we're not free and clear when it comes to the seventh commandment just because we haven't committed physical adultery. The seventh commandment, like all the other commandments, reaches into the heart. Well, that raises another question. Does the seventh commandment only cover adultery? both physical adultery and adultery in the heart. So, for example, does the seventh commandment apply to unmarried people? Does the only thing that the seventh commandment says to someone who's not married is don't have sexual relations or don't lust after someone else is married? Does it apply to activities other than sexual intercourse? Well, peeking ahead into verse 32, um, we're jumping here temporarily. We're going to come back. We'll get back on track. 
But if you peek ahead into verse 32, uh, notice with me that Jesus introduces a new term into his discussion of the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That word in the original sexual immorality is the word pornea, and it's different than the word that Matthew used for adultery. And basically, pornea, and that's the root word that's in pornography, pornea means illicit, forbidden sex of any kind, which raises another question. Well, what is permitted sexual activity? If pornea means sexual immorality, is there such a thing as sexual morality? Or is sex just absolutely evil all the time? Well, this is a summary of the teaching of the Bible on the subject of sex. And you'll notice we're not going into any terms, but... Uh, starting with the green, starting with the red. Green means red light, bad, stop, forbidden, don't go there. In fact, the Bible says flee from sexual immorality. The green light means good, go. And this is predicated, by the way, on Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Look in that passage with me. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 reads, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed, which is a euphemism, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So that's the green zone. The marriage bed. And basically, that stands for consensual and mutually edifying sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife. How do we know that? Genesis 2.24. That's why God created sex in the first place. It's for a husband and his wife, singular. It's for procreation, obviously, but it's also for the mutual benefit of the husband and wife. It's to uh, enhance and strengthen the one flesh bond between a husband and a wife. But you'll notice that between uh, these boundaries... Between green and red, it's, it's, there's no transition. It's a full stop, a hard boundary. And so um, any such activity within this green zone in the context of marriage, it's not a necessary evil, but it's holy, according to Hebrews 13 and verse 4. It's, it's good. And so we read, 
in Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. That verse is talking about this. The whole book of Song of Solomon is talking about this. It's holy, it's undefiled, not to be ashamed of. It is good for your marriage relationship. But then outside is everything else. And that's why I don't need to give you an exhaustive list, which I'm not because I said I'd keep this rated, uh, limited to rated PG-12. The Bible mentions specific sexual activity that's forbidden. But basically, anything that's not in the green zone is sinful. So that is the heart of the matter. Physical adultery, all sexual immorality, it originates in the heart. Well, the next thing that Jesus is going to explain is radical measures for deadly sins. This is the seriousness of it. This is no small thing that he's taking, talking about. This is not something that we can take or leave. Notice what he says in verses 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You hear that? This is a matter of life and death, spiritual life and spiritual death, according to Jesus. And he continues in verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's what's at stake. We cannot let sin, any sin, including sexual sin, have dominion over us, have mastery over us, because sin's goal for us is our eternal destruction. That's what's at stake. Now, this doesn't mean that we should engage in sanctification by mutilation. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. And you know there are people that take this passage that way. I believe it was actually Origen one of the church fathers who took this to heart and uh, had himself castrated based on this passage. Don't do that. Um, but that's not what Jesus is teaching here. This is not sanctification by mutilation, but it is what we're saying here. This is a serious sin with serious consequences that requires serious sacrificial, radical measures. And 
And one reason, by the way, that we know that Jesus doesn't mean this literally, physically, is because of what he's already taught, that adultery, all sexual immorality is ultimately a matter of the heart. And so even somebody who's missing a right hand or a right eye or both eyes and both hands can still lust in the heart. So why did Jesus use this kind of language to emphasize the deadly nature of sexual sin and the radical measures we should be willing to take to fight against it? There's a sense in which, a real sense in which, our ultimate salvation is at stake. In Galatians chapter 5, we were in verse, uh, I read from verse 17 earlier. In Galatians chapter 5 and verses 19 through 21, Paul wrote, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. This is the outward manifestation of our sinful nature. First one, pornea, sexual immorality, the red zone. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, which is probably sexual impurity, sensuality, which means thinking that and, and living as if your bodily impulses are your God. You have this urge. You have to satisfy it. Sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Then Paul adds, I warn you, just like Jesus warned us in Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not to say that Christians do not sin in these ways. We certainly do. But what do we do when we sin? The Holy Spirit convicts us. We repent afresh. We turn from our sin to God's mercy in Jesus Christ. We confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't live there. We don't live in the cesspool of the works of the flesh. This is not a characteristic description of the Christian life. It's a characteristic description of our, of our former life before we were converted that's what Paul is teaching here. This is what the Bible teaches. Being a Christian makes a difference in your life. Doesn't mean that you will never sin. 
but you are no longer a slave to sin. You will not sin like you used to sin. You'll be a lifelong repenter. That's what it means to be a believer and then to have the Holy Spirit in us producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit that Paul goes on to describe. So, what kind of radical measures? I said that uh, Jesus isn't speaking literally here. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's, it's hyperbole. It's an intentional exaggeration to make a point. But he is talking about taking radical measures. So, lots of books written on the subject, but it's hard not to say some things. Sometimes this means something radical like getting a new group of friends. And I think that especially applies to, to younger people. Um, sexual immorality was really prevalent when I was growing up, and frankly, I was right in the middle of it. I wasn't saved till I was 26. But as I understand our culture, it's a lot worse now. And if you make a stand for Jesus and you say, I'm committed to, to sexual purity and, and waiting until I'm married, you are going to be ridiculed, you're going to be thought weird, you're going to be called names. So just getting a new group of friends can be radical, but it might be necessary because bad company corrupts good morals. Ending a relationship. I think there's a lot of liberty about um, when someone can start thinking about a member of the opposite sex and all of that. And uh, I don't like churches imposing rules. But if you're in a relationship and the other person is, is after you, <laughs> tempting you, trying to coax you to go into the red zone... And that person is not listening to you say, no, I'm committed to Jesus. Jesus died for me, and that means he owns me, body and soul. My body belongs to Jesus, not you. And that your wishes are not being honored? End it. Get rid of that relationship. It's worth that radical measure. Being careful about what you wear. Uh, and again, we don't have a church dress code. I hate such things. I'm not talking about dressing like they did on Little House on the Prairie, although it's cute. Or, or being frumpy. Or dressing like those poor Muslim ladies do in certain countries. Oh, that's not biblical either. But you know what I'm talking about. There are some outfits, some articles of clothing that are meant 
to make you into eye candy. And if that's the case, don't wear something like that. Don't be eye candy. Or being careful about what you watch, movies, TV shows, videos that arouse lust in your heart, or limiting or, or eliminating your access to the internet. If you cannot control that access, get rid of it. It is not true that you cannot live without a computer or that you cannot live without the internet. Yes, you can. Jesus says you can, and it might be worth it. So just some ideas. Radical measures. This is what Jesus tells us. All right. Biblical grounds for divorce. Verses 31 and 32, uh, not a separate subject from what we've been talking about. It's the same subject in verses, as verses 27 through 30, because adultery often leads to divorce. And the big picture that Jesus is talking about is the sanctity of marriage. Because keeping sex in its proper place is upholding the sanctity of marriage. So his teaching on divorce here fits. So notice verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And the Old Testament does teach that. In fact, this is a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. But the Jewish religious leaders had twisted God's allowance, and that's what that was, an allowance of divorce into a license to divorce one's wife for any cause. That's what we read in Matthew 19 and verse 3. In fact, one Pharisee rabbi, Hillel, taught that a man could divorce his wife for burning food. Remember, that's not what the Bible teaches. So what was Jesus' response? Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Sexual immorality Remember, that's all illicit sex. Including adultery breaks the marriage covenant. That doesn't require divorce. By the way, this is another area where the uh, Jewish rabbis had twisted the scriptures. There developed a school of thought, a tradition that required divorce in the case of adultery. That's not what the Bible taught. Divorce is an allowance, but it's not required. And by the way, the Apostle Paul added abandonment 
as a biblical ground for divorce as well. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 um, specifically. And, and that only makes sense. So um, illicit sexual activity obviously breaks the marriage covenant, but so does abandonment, abandonment when someone, one spouse just leaves because it's a one flesh relationship that provides companionship and all of the joys and blessings that marriage brings. That, that is all assuming togetherness. So if one spouse or the other bails, that's also a violation of the marriage covenant. It breaks the marriage covenant. And, and let me just say this too. Um, that was the role, that was the authority of the apostles, not just to repeat what Jesus taught, but to elaborate, to open up, and to apply. There's a lot of things that Jesus taught that the apostles elaborated on. The doctrine of justification. Jesus taught it, but not as much as the apostle Paul elaborated on it. So the fact that Paul adds abandonment as a biblical ground for divorce doesn't bother me. He's actually doing his job as an apostle. And uh, in his world of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentile world, that made a lot of sense. It was very applicable because there were many unequal yokes. Um, not intentionally, that's something you shouldn't seek, but there were many instances in which in a married couple, one or the other got saved and the other one didn't. And what should the saved spouse do? Well, not divorce unless the, the other spouse just wants to leave. If, if he wants to depart, let him, let him depart, Paul says. So there is... There are grounds for divorce. But what if someone divorces his or her spouse on unbiblical grounds? Again, the words of Jesus makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is very controversial and I'm probably not going to unravel the whole thing right now and answer all of your questions. In fact, I'm going to cheat and just read a quote from D.A. Carson in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. So referring back to the grounds for divorce, the natural way to take the accept clause is that divorce is wrong because it generates adultery except in the case of fornication. In that case, where sexual sin has already been committed, nothing is laid down, though it appears that divorce is then implicitly permitted, even if not mandated. But what about Jesus' words? Makes her commit adultery, etc. As I read those words, it seems to me that... Um, Jesus is basically laying the weight of responsibility on the spouse who divorced the other spouse unbiblically. 
But what if you did everything wrong and you divorced your husband and your wife on unbiblical grounds? Are you now basically living in a state of constant and perpetual, unpardonable, unforgivable sin? Well, obviously not, because that would violate the spirit of the gospel that says that Jesus died for all of our sins. He, he died to make us whole to the uttermost. He died to take away our sins. And we're told that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that includes your marriage or divorce situation as you sit. You, you can't go back and undo it or redo it. You, you can't untangle that mess. For one thing, your former spouse may be remarried, or you may be remarried, and are you gonna, for you to go back and fix all that means more sin because there's more divorce or more inappropriate lust. And at the same time, your former spouse might be an unbeliever and you're not supposed to be unequally yoked. And so the lesson of the gospel is here you are, God has saved you by his grace through faith in the finished work of his son. He's called you to a new life and he's called you a new creature. And so walk in obedience to the Lord where you are in the situation in which God in his providence has you. Christ has died for your sins. He's taken that out of the way. And now he has called you to live in a way that upholds the sanctity of marriage and the authority of the seventh commandment in your new life. But in closing, I hope that you can see why the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, that, I think, is the main reason why Jesus gave this instruction. Because he was teaching a bunch of people who were used to being taught that the law of God is a way of establishing our own righteousness. And by applying the law of God, in this case, the seventh commandment, to the heart, he's leaving everybody guilty. If you're not a Christian, I'm confident that you have violated the seventh commandment. Even if you never actually had physical adultery, I'm sure that you have lusted in your heart. And so, even though 
Other people might look at you outwardly and say that you're a moral, good person. God, who looks at the heart, sees you for who and what you really are, a sinner who's in desperate need of salvation. And that is why Jesus came into the world came into the world. He didn't come for people who think that they're good, but he came to call sinners to repentance. He came to make sinners well, including, including those who have violated God's standard of sexuality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of sins. And included in that list is examples of sexual immorality. There's other things too. Drunkenness and envy and outbursts of wrath. But just like he said in Galatians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if, if that characterizes someone's life, don't be deceived. Jesus is not in you. But then the next verse, 1 Corinthians 6.11, says this. And such were some of you. That's the thing. As believers... We're no better than you are. We're no better than our society that is trumpeting sexual immorality and putting letters to it and making it a political platform. In our hearts, we're guilty of the same kinds of sin. But what happened? The grace of God made a difference, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what God does. This is the good news. The good news is, if Jesus can save the likes of us, the likes of me, then he can save you. Come to him today, and he will save you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his teaching, for his example, but especially for his, his death and his resurrection. We thank you that he died for sexually immoral people, for adulterers. We thank you that he is in the business of saving all kinds of sinners. Would you save sinners in our midst even today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.